Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, June 24th, we are studying James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. There are two kinds of wisdom, St. James says, and he minces no words when he talks about them. Earthly wisdom is unspiritual and demonic, but the wisdom from above shows itself in the lives of Christians as the fruit of the Holy Spirit. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Ryan Agrotowitz. Pastor Agrotowitz serves as the Associate Pastor and Headmaster at Grace Lutheran Church and School in Brenham, Texas. Pastor Agrotowitz, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you, Pastor Apple. Uh, It's good to be here. So we are... In the second half, I think, of the epistle that St. James writes for us now with, with this text, and we come to the text, actually, that the, the series that we're in here on Sharper Iron takes its name from. It's called Wisdom from Above. St. James really is a book of wisdom. There's lots of connections to the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, connections to Jesus' words, particularly from the Sermon on the Mount. A lot a lot to look at, a lot to think about with this text, with the epistle as a whole. Pastor Grotowitz, give us some, some introduction to the context that we need, whether that's the whole epistle, particularly what came before or after this text, that'll help us into these few verses for today. Yeah, sure. James is not going to let someone claiming to be a Christian get away with being lazy are thinking the law doesn't matter. And so when he writes to the people, and the book is specifically addressed to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, he's going to make sure they understand that the Christian life does entail right living. So it's not that he denies justification or doesn't understand the gospel, but he does talk a lot in this book and, and even emphasizes the Christian life. James is an epistle that I think works best in our minds and our hearts when we see it we see it already with the foundation and understanding of justification and how one is saved. And again, there's more than one spot in the book of James that shows he knows the quite he knows the gospel quite well. And he talks as if the people he's writing to understands it. You know, it's not a book like Romans where Paul is working with more on a catechetical basis of running through Christian doctrine more from a top-bottom or bottom-to-the-top approach from beginning to end. That is to say, he is spending time catechizing the people on all sorts of doctrine, where in the book of James, James is he's getting at some specific things, which seems to suggest that perhaps in his mind, his audience is aware of justification. They're, they're aware of what faith is, and now he's going to dwell on some points, namely Christian living and, and what that looks like. Again, whereas Paul, when he's writing to uh, Jews and Gentiles, he's, he's hitting more of a broad spectrum of doctrine, and certainly he thunders home the doctrine of justification in a, in a wonderful, clear, articulate way. But for James, yes, by the time we get to chapter 3, 
he's talked about faith and works, what that looks like. He is not at all going to allow the Christian, as I said, to get away with living a lazy lifestyle, thinking works do not matter, the Ten Commandments do not matter. He talks about the tongue and how the tongue can just set a whole forest ablaze, like a little spark. And that's how important it is that we say and speak the right things as Christian people. He is a man who puts the pedal to the metal. When he wants to make a point, he is going to make it full bore and not hold back. He does not mince words. And, and perhaps the extremities of his epistles, what kind of pushes us back a little bit. I mean, when he talks about faith and works, uh, a living faith is going to produce. Faith without works is dead. And we could read into that some sort of legalism, but in the opening chapter of James, you know, he does state that we are uh, begotten of the Word. I mean, that's clearly what we believe, teach, and confess that God's Word. Faith comes by hearing. And a living faith is going to produce good fruits. And when we get to chapter 3, now he's going to talk about wisdom. And I think there's a very clear case to be made in the section we're looking at today that James, once again, is talking about something that comes from above. The salvation is from above, and even, I'm, I'm hoping by the end of our recording, we'll see that even the works he is talking about is also something that God gives that comes from above. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right, that those words from above are going to be key for us, that it's not, to use maybe some Pauline language here, when this wisdom comes from above, it's not that we ascend into heaven, as he says in Romans chapter 10, to take that wisdom for ourselves, but rather that the wisdom comes down to us, is brought down to us in the Word, as, as we've already said in James chapter 1, so that when we hear of this wisdom from above, we're hearing that in the context of a gift. This is what God has given, the word that's been implanted, to use the, the language James uses in chapter 1. And now that wisdom that has been implanted, well, this is the image he picks up at the end of, the, of this chapter in this text, is that it bears fruit. That, I mean, you said James doesn't mince words, he puts the pedal to the metal. He uses these very vivid images throughout his book, word pictures that, that stick a picture into our head. I've, I've found it helpful as we've gone through this book to, to really dig into those pictures, paint them well, and, and put them in our minds to help us see what James is getting at. But you're right, this is all in the foundation of, of gift of gospel, James knows it well, and he really dwells on the living out of that, refusing to let Christians be lazy, as you've said. Any further introductory comments, response to that before we dig into the text for today? I think there's a lot to talk about on chapters one and two. Understanding, yes, the word pictures he uses, understanding his style of writing is important when looking at a book like James. He is very clear, he is to the point, and he, he does work with extremes and, and, as we said, you know, pushing the pedal to the metal to make his point to hammer it home, and it does stick in your heads. Uh, I mean, like a, a pregnant statement like, faith without works is dead. Really, what does that look like? What does that mean? And it, it compels us to think about what he is saying. The phrase, from above, that's a loaded phrase that teaches us all sorts of things, meaning, namely, that the source... Wisdom from above means just that. It's not coming from a ground level, it's not coming from our flesh, but it's coming from God alone. So in terms of introductory comments, I, I think 
I think that we've done enough to hopefully give our hearer, you know, the mindset of James and what we're dealing with in this epistle. So um, I think we can move into the, the text proper, if you wish. Let's do it. James chapter 3, beginning at verse 13. St. James writes, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That is the text for today. Romans, sorry, not Romans, James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Pastor Agrotowitz, the opening question sets the tone. Who is wise. Wisdom is the overarching theme of our text. What do we need to know about this word, wisdom, wise, for James, and biblically speaking? Biblically speaking, the theme of wisdom is is, is really all over the place. One can read Proverbs chapter 8 and see a whole chapter devoted to the topic of wisdom we hear our Lord Jesus Christ called the wisdom of God and power for salvation. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul devotes a lot of time to, to wisdom and what it is. The Lord Jesus Christ says in Matthew eleven nineteen, wisdom is uh, justified by her children. Luke records the Lord saying wisdom is justified by her deeds. Both things teach us plenty. So we really do see it. In numerous places. Uh, another reference, 2 Timothy 3.15, speak of the scriptures, making one wise for salvation through faith in Christ. So for James to say wisdom is from above, he is only echoing what has already been said in the Bible, beginning in the Old Testament, running, running firmly into the New. There are two types of wisdom. You are either wise according to the world standards, or you have a wisdom from above. When James asks this opening question, you know, who is wise and understanding amongst you? My mind immediately flashed back to St. Paul. When he asked a very similar rhetorical question in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, who is wise and who, where is the debater of this age? So living in an age of rhetoricians, philosophers, people who, you know, spoke publicly and conveyed themselves as being very wise amongst the people, this question would have had huge importance, and even it does for us today. I mean, everyone's got an opinion, right? Everybody's writing stuff and saying stuff and so forth, and so these questions of, you know, who really is the wise one should compel us to think, where is the true wisdom? Who, who do I really need to be listening to, and where do I look for such wisdom? So there's a lot here in just this verse 13, and I think... I. Yeah, I, I do. I don't just think. I, I know you're going to get more out of verse 13 if coming into this, the reader already has a firm understanding of wisdom. That namely, wisdom is from a God from from above. God gives it, and that wisdom for us as Christian people is manifested in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That God's wisdom 
is the wisdom of salvation and all that that entails wrapped up and for us in the work of Jesus. Right. That that foundation that God's wisdom is revealed fully in Christ is so important for understanding this matter of what wisdom is, what does it mean to be wise. You mentioned Proverbs chapter 8, and, and really the whole book of Proverbs is a book about wisdom. And of course, how does Proverbs define wisdom for us? Well, true wisdom is the fear of the Lord. So this becomes a first commandment issue. And I'm, I'm going to start talking in, in multiple, there's going to be multiple directions here that we could go. Like you said, the other, I mean, you've mentioned there's there's two wisdoms that James talks about. There's either the wisdom of this world, or there is the wisdom that comes down from above, which again, that's a connection to the book of Proverbs and other what's called wisdom literature in the Old Testament that often lays out there are two ways so in the first part of the book of Proverbs, you get lady folly, foolishness, calling out, follow this way. And you also have wisdom personified also as, as a woman calling out, no, follow this way. And James uses that same language. Psalm 1 is another example of two ways. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the way of wickedness, but then the wicked, right, they they follow this way. So two ways. Another key theme that we see, biblically speaking, Jesus talks about the the narrow gate or the the wide path. I mean, lots of lots of images here just from this word wisdom, but all centered in Christ. And and that's the key. You know, I've I've said previously when it comes to the book of James, you don't see him use the name Jesus very often at all. But the imprint of Jesus' words particularly are all over the place. And I think his talk of wisdom, because this isn't the only place that it comes up in this book, is one of those places where you see that fingerprint. When James starts talking to us about what does it mean to be wise, he's inviting us to think of Christ and his words and find our wisdom there. I've, I've said a lot of gone sort of scattershot there, Pastor God. It's maybe you can focus in on one of those things for us. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I'm really glad that you brought up fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And I'm kind of kicking myself because that, that's really fundamental, right? I mean, that's what I should have let off the response. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, which takes you back to the first commandment. So talk about, you know, foundational. There it is, the bedrock. I mean, who is the God you serve? If you want to have the right wisdom, then you have to worship and believe in the the one true God. Also, too, if I could piggyback on this this language of the imprint of Christ in the epistle of James. In verse 13, he he, he says the meekness of wisdom. Some translations may do the humility of, of wisdom, but that term meekness is important. You know, that's the exact term used to describe Jesus in 2 Corinthians 10, 10 verse 1. Um, it's also, of course, an attitude that Christians should have. So as Jesus is meek, we should be meek as well. It's a mistake to define this word as, as weakness, that we're not strong or not courageous. That's not the meekness that we're talking about here at all. But to, meet, to be meek is to be one who knows his or her place before God. So Jesus is meek in that he is obedient to the Father. He humbles himself, taking on the form of a servant, and he will complete his role of saving humanity, ultimately by ascending to the cross to lay down his life. 
Christians are to be meek and that we understand we are, you know, A, sinful people who cannot save themselves, and all that we really need in this life comes from above. We need God's wisdom and we need his guidance. So this little phrase here, meekness of wisdom, it, uh, too, it's another loaded phrase that us Christians need to, to pay close attention to. And it's in this meekness of wisdom that good works are shown in our qualitative good behavior. So in verse 13, already James is getting at where the works come from in the meekness of wisdom. Well, where does that wisdom come from? Well, he's going to go on to say that wisdom comes from above. And it's a, it's a wisdom not given to arrogance. Uh, this is a wisdom that does produce good fruits because it's a wisdom that God implants in the person he gives it to them by his Holy Spirit that creates faith to be wise in Christ, and that in turn is going to blossom in good fruits and works that God produces according to his good and his gracious will. This is a far, far cry, really 180 degrees opposite. The wisdom that boasts is arrogant. The wisdom that makes you feel inferior the wisdom that says, look at me because I have the answer and I am always right. Look at me because I have a lot of letters behind my name and I have a lot of advanced degrees. I've written lots of books. This is not the wisdom that elevates and arrogates itself above others, but a wisdom that causes a person to know, I am a sinner and I am saved only by Christ alone who calls me to love my neighbor. I do that imperfectly, but we do it in the free gift that is sins forgiven all because of Jesus and his saving work. Yeah, the the definition of, of meekness that you gave us, that we would know what our place is before God, uh, would also then lead us to know what our place is in relationship to others, which I, I think is, is what, you're, what you're saying when it comes to the matter of it's not given to arrogance. And we've seen this kind of wisdom preached to us in the book of James already when he's talked about the making of distinctions within the church between rich and poor, the showing of partiality to one group or the other, that knowing what your relationship is toward others comes from knowing your standing before God as a sinner who has freely received grace from him such that all sinners in the church who have received that grace then stand on that equal footing and are given this sort of wisdom from above not to be arrogant, not to be proud toward one another, but rather to show this humility, this meekness. And I, I appreciate you saying that this meekness is not the same as weakness being a pushover. And, and as I was reflecting on that, the words of St. Paul, particularly from Romans 14 and 15, since we've just come out of that here on Sharper Iron, remind, I was reminded there where Paul talks about the difference between the the strong and the weak in faith, that I, I think this meekness is shown in that very chapter when it comes to the strong in faith, that they are willing to restrain themselves, refrain from fully exercising their freedom for the sake of their brother who belongs to Christ. And, and that sort of meekness, it's not a weakness, but true strength, it, it is true strength that is willing to restrain itself in that way and refuses to to place oneself over another. That's, I mean, it's meek, but it's not weak. That's where the true strength is. And as you pointed out, that's what we see in Christ, that he humbled himself 
and became obedient to death, even death on the cross, for the sake of winning our salvation. It's meek, but it's not it's not weak. And that's that's what wisdom looks like. The other and you're you're free to respond to that, Pastor Grotowitz, but the other word here that we we've skipped over already in verse thirteen, it Paul Paul, I keep saying Paul because I've been reading Romans for so long. James says, who is wise? And then he says, understanding. So how does how does the understanding fit into all of this? Sure. Uh, yeah, crucial distinction. Meek and weak are really two different terms. And I don't know of many men who would like to be called meek. But in Numbers 12, Moses is called meek. Hmm. And, I mean, Moses has a temper. Moses is a leader. Moses is a man who, who killed. He kills the, uh, the Egyptian, attacking one of his kinsmen. And yet the scriptures call him meek. So that should give you some indication that it is completely possible to be strong, courageous, and meek at the same time. But to this word understanding, right, I, I think another way, when you look at the Greek term on this to see what it means, uh, the, the definition that I recorded straight from the Greek lexicon is wise in a way making effective use of such wisdom. And so there is this understanding of how to use the wisdom that you've been given. This isn't just head knowledge. And of course, James is going to talk about how that wisdom is used and what it looks like. Perhaps the term prudent is appropriate. You're a smart person, you're a wise person, but you also know how to use it in a way that is effective for the neighbor. Once again, as opposed to someone who uses the wisdom just to arrogate his or herself, just to show how smart he is, instead of using wisdom that really is good and proper uh, for the neighbor. So that's what we should see in that word understanding. So all, all of this, before we leave this verse, I know we've talked quite a bit about it, but before we leave this verse, just the fact that James puts this to us as a question, who is wise and understanding among you, invites self-reflection. And, and self-reflection as individuals, reflection as a congregation who is wise and understanding among you. James is calling the Christian, the Christian congregation, to examine himself, to examine themselves, to see whether or not this wisdom is, is there to repent where it's not and to turn to Christ for that wisdom where, where it is not. I think that's that's an important thing to see this matter of self-examination that's just inherent in the way that James puts this out there for Christians. Yeah, sure, yeah. Every time we see a question, a rhetorical question in Holy Writ, it should invite us and even compel us to see how we relate to that question. Uh, Paul does in 1 Corinthians, Jesus does in the Gospels, though I can't think of an example on the top of my head. I know if I flip through, I, I could find some. And, and here James is doing it. So right, if you're you know, reading the Holy Scriptures and one of these questions comes up, take some time, pause and think about it, and ask. You know, I think I'm wise. I don't know. Am I? And by the grace of God, you know, you'll come to the right conclusion and and think rightly about things, and instead of pouring pouring your own definition into a word or your own thought, you know, when it comes to wisdom, we all think we're really smart. Uh, we all think we're wise. And going back to to Paul in First Corinthians, who also talks a lot about this, you know, he has this statement in First Corinthians three. I'm going to flip to it real quick and see if I can find it. 
But in 1 Corinthians, the, ah, yeah, right here, verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Let him become a fool that he may become wise. That's a powerful verse. And I can't help but think James is getting at that as well. That instead of seeing yourself as always the smart person, you know, treat yourself as a fool. That is to say, one who needs to learn. One who knows nothing apart from God's guidance, from God leading you. See yourself as one who always is the student and who's always going to Scripture, always learning, always, always thinking and meditating on the divine things of God. I mean, we are, we are told by God, uh, you know, of course, to meditate on his word. I mean, blessed is the man who meditates on the word. Psalm 1 begins with that. You're, you're meditating, you're thinking about this word all the time. Because we never arrive at the point where we say, aha, we've got it learned. I mean, every pastor worth his salt needs to think like this. We're always learning, sitting at the feet of our Lord, you know, diving into the Holy Scriptures, seeking the wisdom that God gives. Every sermon uh, composition takes a lot of work, a lot of sweat, and even even a, a fair amount of questioning. And what I'm saying right, checking it with some faithful commentators just to make sure we're on the right path, on the right track. Um, all good things to do in our in our quest not to be wise in our own eyes, but really to be fools in, in the sense that we always have something to learn and never a day goes by when we don't need God's Word, never a day goes by when we don't need to think and contemplate God's Word. What is He teaching? What is He saying to us? That's a much more healthier way to live than living as if you know everything and you, you really, at that point, you, you can't be taught. And that, that's a dangerous way to be. That, all of that ties this very nicely to what James has just finished saying, particularly at the first part of chapter 3. I mean, he's talked about the, not many becoming teachers, right? And and that's you're talking about those need to listen to the Word to become a fool. He's talking about controlling your tongue. And, and when you control your tongue, well, if you go back to James chapter 1, like, be quick to listen, slow to speak. And so those who control their tongue are going to be listening. Here James directs, well, where are you going to listen? What what wisdom are you going to listen to? Listen to the wisdom of God's Word found in Christ Jesus, which is what we're doing here on Sharp Iron. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, June 24th. We're looking at James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18 with Pastor Ryan Grotowitz. He serves as associate pastor and headmaster at Grace Lutheran Church and School 
in Brenham, Texas. Pastor Grotowitz, prior to the break, we looked at verse 13, where James lays out this matter of wisdom and understanding that is seen in meekness. Now he turns to look at the negative part of it, the, the opposite of what he's talking about. And so the way that he starts to talk about that in verse 14, he says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. What are these two items that he's thinking about? Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Okay, so the bitter jealousy, uh, the New King James says envy. That's the first thing, and it, it just means just that. You you are zealous and jealous for something. Even I don't think coveting is off the table right there. And then self-seeking or selfish ambition are just really raw selfishness to please the to please the self. Both of these things are the opposite of Christian contentment. So the Christian should be content in his station in life and at peace where God has, has, has put him, uh, knowing that your station in life, if you're a mother, father, son, daughter, husband, wife, or worker, being content, learning to be content, that's a healthy way to be, as opposed to having envy and an ambition for something, looking beyond where you're at, even coveting something, I think right there the Ninth and the Tenth Commandments specifically are in play right there. Your eyes are on the wrong thing. You're looking at something, wanting something that you shouldn't be desiring, and this is flowing out of, of course, a sinful heart. And once you get like this, when it's bitter envy and selfishness that is governing how you act, then you are not operating as a Christian who is to live by faith in a peaceful contentment. You may not be happy with your circumstances, but you are content insofar as you know God is a giver and he is a provider. You are content to know the chief thing, sins forgiven, are in your possession for the sake of Christ. Of course, the opposite of that is going to be a life of envy, zeal, jealousy, and seeking something out of selfishness just to appease your own burning desire. And that bitter jealousy, that envy, and this selfish ambition, this looking in on one's self, which would be the opposite of looking at the wisdom of Christ, his word that we were talking about on the other side of the break, the temptation when those things are, are in your hearts, because that's where James locates those two things, they're in the right. heart, the temptation then is for those heart, heart word, inner, inner attitudes to manifest themselves in two things, boasting and lying, being false to the truth. And, and so, I mean, James is directing us, again, to examine ourselves, to look for these things in our hearts, and if we find them there, well, to do something about it for sure, but also to watch out for these particular sins that would manifest themselves outwardly, the boasting and the being false to the truth. Right, and the, and the term heart... That's a crucial word. Jeremiah, in chapter 17, verse 9, he has this line, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And of course, in the Gospels, Jesus will give a whole laundry list of sins that come out of the heart. So here, to have a heart that is filled with bitter envy and self-seeking, that's bad, but that's a product of a heart, a sinful heart, because we're all conceived in sin, and we deal with sin our entire lives, original sin sticks to our bones, 
until the day we draw our last breath. And for God's people, that's when we are, of course, taken from this life with all this heartache and sins into that eternal abode to be with our Lord, free from these things. But here and now in this life, we deal with this. And a heart not filled with the Holy Spirit, a heart that doesn't possess faith, is a heart given over to the devil that's going to produce these, these horrible sins, bitter envy, selfish ambition. And, yeah, so the second half of the sentence, James says, if you, if you have these things, do not boast and lie against the truth. So what is the truth? Simple passage and definition would be John 14, 6, when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Getting back to the idea of God's wisdom manifested in the person work of Jesus and his teaching, there is truth. And Jesus preaches plenty of law to show that we are sinful and we cannot save ourselves. But if you're a boaster, if you're selfish, if you love yourself, the gospel doesn't have a lot of use for you. The atonement is something you can set aside if you look at yourself and say, you know what, you know, I'm really stronger than what my God tells me. You know what, I'm not too worried about hell because I'm just not worried about sin. The Ten Commandments are something, well... I may read them, I may not. Having that kind of attitude is, is dangerous and deadly for a variety of reasons. But selfish, self-centered people are going to want to boast of themselves, but it's a lie. They're lying against the truth as they stand against the Word of God, where he levels the playing field to say all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Christ died for the ungodly, to which we want to say, but but I'm I'm not that bad. I'm not that sinful when the scriptures in fact reveal that we are. It's a lie when we conceive when we uh, deceive ourselves into thinking we have we have no sin and there really is no need for repentance. Yeah, the do not boast would be the opposite, I think, of the meekness of wisdom that we were talking about previously, where I boast because I don't know my place before God, and I don't know my place before other people. And being false to the truth is the opposite of the wisdom and understanding that, that James talked about at the beginning as well, that I, I don't look to Christ, but I, I look inside myself for whatever wisdom I might find there. And, and as you said from the prophet Jeremiah, what's, what's there in the heart? Wickedness. That's, that's where my sin resides. Uh, follow your heart is the, is the wisdom that gets proclaimed at, at graduation ceremonies back when we had graduation ceremonies. And it's just not, not a good idea. Uh, to follow your heart. Rather, look to the wisdom from above. That's where James would would have us look. Before he, he goes again to that positive description of what that wisdom from above looks like, he continues to speak about this other wisdom. And in verse 15, he, he really gets to one of those places where he doesn't mince words. He just says it like it is. He says this, this matter of bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, that manifests in boasting and lying. That's not the wisdom that comes from above, but rather he calls this wisdom three things. He calls it earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And it seems that that builds to a crescendo there with that word demonic. Take us into to verse 15 and what James is saying about this earthly wisdom. Pastor Gradowitz. It's a wisdom of the world. It's a wisdom from man. It's a wisdom that we fabricate. It's a wisdom of the devil who wants us to think things 
that he thinks, who wants us to say things that he would say, it's the exact opposite from the wisdom of above. This takes us back, you know, I said, James likes extremes. You know, there are two types of wisdoms, take your pick, one from above, one from below, one from the earth. So I like that term crescendo you used, couldn't agree more. It's earthly, it's unspiritual or, or sensual, the New King James Version says. And then finally, this is all demonic. This stuff is not okay. If it's sensual as in unspiritual, as he is saying, I shouldn't say if, it is. Uh, the reason why I like the translation sensual and unspiritual as well, they're both good, but sensual kind of plays on the idea you're doing stuff that just appeals to your senses, stuff that feels good stuff that looks right in your own eyes. Whatever you come up with or you think, hmm, I think this is a good idea, so I'm going to do it. And that's as far as your thinking goes. And and this is demonic. That's his description of it. So two choices, either your wisdom is from God or your wisdom is from the demons. It's from the devil. So once again, we're, we're compelled to think about where are we getting our wisdom from? And we're compelled to think about pausing a little bit before we say something, before we do something. This is so important why the church needs to have a voice in society and culture. I mean, we look at what's going on with the nation right now, plenty of problems to go abound, and there's plenty of work, there's there's plenty of work for the church to do. And so, you know, at least one of my petitions and prayers is that the sedition and the rebellion, that the Lord would, would curb these things. But we should also hope and pray that, that God's wisdom would go forth, that people would hear, that they would repent of their sin and have some good wisdom about them before they riot and loot and hurt innocent people. Oh, it's a tall task for the church, but, you know, to put it, to put it succinctly as James does, any wisdom apart from God that he gives, is going to be a wisdom of the, of the demons. As more and more people veer from church, and as she loses whatever influence she had, we can expect more and more people operating with a wisdom that is not from above. Uh, and once again, it is satanic and demonic, and so the church is going to have a tall task in front of her, and the Lord will carry her through it. There's plenty of work to be done, but I mean, pick, pick what wisdom you want. That's, that's what's being laid before us. I I think so. I'm I'm trying to roll this around in my mind. This talk yeah. of wisdom, it is you know he he still uses that term for both things. You've got the wisdom from above, and you've got this earthly wisdom. Now in James's mind, clearly the wisdom that is below, the earthly wisdom is clearly no real wisdom, but it it presents itself as such still and that that's probably the temptation again to go back to that image that the book of proverbs uses where you've got folly and wisdom as they're pictured there both calling out to a person saying follow this way there's a temptation from that folly from this earthly wisdom and james use of the word demonic in relationship to this wisdom at least and this is where i'm, I'm trying to clarify this in my own mind earlier in the book of James, when he brought up demons, it was in the context of faith and works, and he talks about the faith that demons have. Demons have faith that God is one. There's there's a knowledge of the truth. There's maybe even an assent to the truth. That there's a recognition that this is true, but there's no trust in that truth from the demons. And so there's 
and this is where I'm, I'm trying to clarify. I'm not sure exactly what connection I'm, I'm trying to make here, but there's there's this temptation that maybe tries to gild over this demonic wisdom with some sort of spiritual facade and use, uses language that sounds spiritual. I'm using air quotes. You can't see that here, Pastor Agradowitz. That sounds spiritual, but isn't founded in the wisdom of Christ, isn't a living, active trust in Christ that, that propels one to the true good works of, of meekness and, and the fruit that James is going to talk about here. And so this, this demonic wisdom, it, it may look good, but James is really uncovering that for us, much like he did with chapter 2, where he uncovered this false sort of faith that, that talked about God, but was not a living, active trust in Christ. Uh, help, me, am, am I, help me clarify that, or, or let me try and bounce that idea off you there. You know, Luther has a quote where he says, the devil is God's ape. And I'm sure you've heard that. I don't know exactly where it is, but his point is the devil is always aping God and trying to do things that look godlike when they are not. You know, one big example would be, of course, the, the Reformation and the enemies that Luther had to deal with. You know, a whole uh, a church body, you know, claiming to be holy and wise and so forth, when what they were teaching was demonic, insofar as the teaching turned you to yourself or it turned you to a pope every which way but Christ alone. In churches today, I mean, every false teacher is going to pretend to be spiritual. Every false teacher is going to claim to worship God, and I'll use air quotes on that term. They're going to dress up what they're saying in spiritual trappings, so it does sound like it's very wise and very good things. And yet, as they turn you to yourself, as they turn you to your own works, do this and do that, or... The false teacher turns you to believe in them. That is to say, the false teacher, the cult leader, or so forth. That's all demonic things, because they are turning you from the wisdom of above that points you to look directly to Christ, to look to God in the flesh. Anything pulling you away from him, turning you away from him, is the work of the devil. And it's all over. So you have it in church bodies today who say same-sex marriage is a fine idea. Uh, we have one that even calls themselves Lutheran. So we are forced with the task of explaining to people why um, a church body that uses the term Lutheran is, in fact, an apostate church that has rebelled against God and His Word and what they are saying, doing, and teaching. There are churches who think transgenderism is a fine idea, and it's not really a problem. There are churches that ordain women without even a blink. It's no problem. Yes, the scriptures speak against it, but we're in a different time, right? And they claim that's wise. They claim that that is good. They claim that that's for um, liberty and forward progress and so forth. So those are examples in the, in the ecclesial realm, in the church, of wisdom that is peddled as God's, when in fact it's wisdom from below. It's wisdom apart from his word. It's wisdom that takes us from Christ and his work and his word and his teaching. Then you get into the society, the realm of society, where people think it is, it is wise to, 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 to riot and loot to, to make their cause known, to hurt their neighbor, to kill even innocent people, to rebel against authority. Now, I want to talk about that here in a little bit. Uh, examples abound, though, 
getting to what you said, I think I think we need to look at the church and see how wisdom can be dressed up to really sound like it's from God. It's dressed in spiritual trappings and apparel when, in fact, it's not. And, man, we have to be careful against such things, and the Christian has to beware and be watchful because this stuff can come upon us in the blink of an eye. Yes, exactly. And, I mean, that takes us to verse 16, where, where James, again, points us to the fruit. The Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice, so that when this this wisdom that dresses itself up and tries to look good is there, you're going to see it in the fruit. And we, I mean, we could, we could list all kinds of, as, as he's, you know, he just says, every vile practice, you've mentioned some of those. It, the fruit is where you see this wisdom manifest itself. And, and of course, for all of us, the temptation is to just look at what everyone else is doing in their vile practices, all the while ignoring my own. And that's that takes us back to the very beginning of the section where St. James puts the question on us. Who is wise and understanding among you? Where in your heart is there bitter jealousy and selfish ambition that would manifest itself in these ways? And, and sometimes we try to comfort ourselves saying, well, it's not manifesting myself in, in, in my life in a quite as vile a practice as it is in that person's life, and I find some sort of comfort thinking that my trash isn't dirty as my neighbor's, that's no comfort at all for St. James or for any of, of Scripture. We always must examine our own hearts and lives as well and repent for us. Amen to that. You know, I'm talking about the rioters and the looters, and I, I love what you just said. And so that is not to say, and we cannot fall in the trap of thinking, since I'm not doing those things, Perhaps I am better and less sinful and less prone to temptation. Or the problem of original sin is not as severe a problem with me as if someone, um, you know, lighting fires and breaking glass windows in Minnesota. Not at all. The law convicts all people. And that is not the wisdom that James is talking about, this wisdom of comparison. In verse 16, I wanted to focus on, when he says envy and self-seeking, the word confusion right there. You know, I looked up that term well, and it said opposition to established authority was one of the definitions of that, which leads to confusion, which, again, I think we're seeing a lot of that in society right now. Maybe that's why the rioting and the looting is just on my mind. We see it in the news, sure, but when I looked up that word, that was one of the definitions given. So we want to oppose the authorities because we think we have a better way of doing it or we know better. And our opposition comes in a way where our neighbor is hurt, or we start breaking laws this way and that way uh, without speaking out against it in a way that is good, right, and actually actually helpful. So that's one of the things that does come about from selfishness, envy, which in turn comes from the wisdom, the demonic wisdom that is of this world. I mean, James very clearly lays this out. I mean, his catechesis is, is spot on, but very clear and very articulate when he's talking about this point. Now, he doesn't leave us with that negative picture, the opposite. He's going to go on now and describe, well, what is the wisdom from above? What does it look like? We, we've founded it, and James has founded it, in Christ already. What are the fruits of this wisdom? As he lays them out in verse 17, we've got several different adjectives that he uses. As, as it's translated in the ESV, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, 
gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Pastor Gratis, we're looking at about seven minutes left on the morning for these last two verses, just as a heads up, to pick out from those terms what's really important for us to see. Yeah, sure. I think the first one to to focus on is the one that he uses, the very first adjective, and that would be pure in verse 17. And another way of translating the hognos there would be holy. And that shouldn't surprise us. It's pure as it is holy, because it's from above. The holy God gives holy things. So that is just spot on, right in line with what we've been talking about. Wisdom that is holy is wisdom that comes from above. Of course, it's peaceable, uh, making peace, all things that are Christ-like, all things that a Christian should do. And then gentle, right there, and willing to yield. Those two terms are, are good attitudes for a Christian to have, or they're commanded that we have them. We need to be obedient, compliant, but we also need to be mindful of our neighbor and willing to yield in matters where we can yield. Um, and one of those terms, the meaning was not insisting on every right letter of the law. That's one of the definitions you find in the Greek lexicon. So instead of always imposing something upon your neighbor, if you can yield and make for peace, um, do it. If you can yield without violating doctrine, do it. If it's a custom or something in the realm of adiaphora, it's neither commanded nor forbidden, look for ways to yield for the sake of good order and for the sake of your neighbor. Maybe they are operating out of weakness, but if you can help them and and yield where you can, that's a good attitude as opposed to, again, that wisdom where you always want to push over on people and arrogate yourself. Full of mercy and good fruits all good things. We need to be merciful. Uh, the Lord Jesus will say, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Instead of trying to extract from our neighbor what you can get out of them, be merciful towards them instead of always making demands and treating them in a way that God doesn't treat us. That is to say, we demand more from our neighbor than what our God demands of us, where he is willing to send his son to die for the ungodly while we are weak, while we are sinful. We do nothing to merit that we have a sinful tendency to, to look at our neighbor and ask, well, what have you done for me lately? Or I'll be nice to you, I'll forgive you, I'll apologize only if you do first X, Y, and Z. That's not what James is talking about here. And then without partiality and without hypocrisy, to be resolute, firm in our convictions, when we're dealing with our neighbor, we're being kind, we can be willing to yield, but we also have some conviction about us. We're not yielding to them out of weakness, but out of true wisdom, seeing, you know what, I can give on this point, and it'll be okay. I'm not sacrificing the Word of God or anything of that nature. That's a good, true wisdom, but you're doing it because you know, you know the Word of God, and you can still have some conviction and courage about you, but give in to your neighbor a little bit if it helps them. And then without hypocrisy, a, a lesson for all of us, not to be hypocrites, not to say one thing and do something else. Again, James... I mean, he wants consistency from his hearers. You are a Christian, you believe these things, and you need to act these things, and he's not going to let his congregations get away with, I can claim faith and yet go live as the heathens do. That's not according to James. That's not according to all of Scripture. Mm. Then with about three minutes left, Pastor Agrado, it's verse 18, closes out this section, all about righteousness, yet hear that, that word's not explicitly there, though I think there's certainly a relationship. Verse 18 closes, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make 
peace. That that word peaceable was part of the description of the wisdom from above in the previous verse, and now that word peace is, is taken here, and, and James brings up this image, a, a harvest, sowing, planting, an agricultural image for us. Use this verse to, to close things out, wrap things up for us this morning. Hi, it's a great verse to end on in the Beatitudes. When you want to hear about peacemakers, you see it in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, in, for example, Matthew chapter 5, when the Lord says, Blessed, blessed are um, the poor in spirit, theirs are the kingdom of heaven. That's, see, that's 5 verse 3. Where does he say, blessed are the peacemakers? I'm trying to go quick here. I know we're short for time. Ah, yeah, right there in verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. There it is, because um, they, shall, they shall be called sons of God. Hmm. James has to have that in mind here. To be a peacemaker is to be a son of God. He's talking about Christian people here. And you're going to have great fruit by sowing peace. That's a fruit of righteousness, sowing peace. And that's not just, well, get along uh, get along just to, to get along. I think that's the phrase. But you're making peace by uh, forgiving your neighbor, giving them the gospel of peace. The gospel of reconciliation is a way to make peace by telling people their sins are forgiven, by pointing them to Christ, and of course, forgiving and striving for peace in ways where you can yield. That's all included in, in making peace. You don't have hostility, anger, and strife in mind as you go about your day, and you do things. I think you can condense this down to you do things for the sake of your neighbor while holding on to the Word of God. The wisdom of God teaches you to love God and to love your neighbor, and this is an example of what that looks like. Pastor Ryan Agrotowitz is the pastor, associate pastor, and headmaster at Grace Lutheran Church and School in Brenham, Texas, helping us this morning with James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Pastor Agrotowitz, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you, Pastor Apple. A pleasure to be with you. Where is true wisdom found? It is not found from the mind of man. It is not found here below. It is found in Christ, crucified and risen for you and for me. There is true wisdom, wisdom that is implanted in us in the word and must come forth and bear fruit according to God's grace, a gift from above. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.